this edition of the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast, we're looking at cognitive biases and the impact of those biases on your decision-making. So, do you think you're free, exempt from cognitive biases? Really? We'll see. Stay tuned and find out more. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. Here we examine what enables true creativity, how to convert ideas into innovation, and seek out what ignites enterprise-wide growth. I'm your host, entrepreneur, strategist, and user of metacognition, David Peterson. Well, as I continue to do research on innovation and just look for all kinds of ways that innovation can work into our daily lives and uh, particularly in our careers, I come across articles from time to time that I just think are especially spot on. And I've been thinking a lot recently about cognitive biases and the impact of cognitive biases on innovation. And uh, I've recently had a number of examples highlighting for me personally areas and where I have a cognitive bias. And, and you know, it's like, oh, wait, got to check that, got to see that I perhaps am acting right now under uh, the uh, auspices of a bias. So I was especially thrilled to find an article by Mike Pinder, P-I-N-D-E-R. He is an innovation consultant at the Board of Innovation. And he has this article that I ran across called The 16 Cognitive Biases That Can Kill Your Decision-Making. Uh, and I'll put a link to this article on the show notes, and uh, and I encourage you to to look it up and and read it for yourself. But it really just kind of got me going relative to this idea of the impact of cognitive biases on decision making. Now, many of you know that I wrote a book called Grounded, and uh, focus of that book is how do we how do we enable ourselves and others to make really really good decisions particularly in a situation of crisis. And so this idea of how these cognitive biases impact our decision-making is one that's of great uh, particular interest. Anything that lessens our ability to make a great decision, anytime, really, but especially when there's a time of crisis, when, as those of you that have listened to the podcast before, our bodies go into fight or flight mode, so about 20% of the blood that's normally in our brain goes to our legs and our arms for fight or flight, right? Running and, and swinging. So therefore, we are by default, maybe not quite as sharp as we could or should be in a moment of crisis. So if if that's the case, and, and we know that from a physiological standpoint, then anything that would further diminish our ability to make a great decision, we should be very, very aware of. So uh, this is why I think this idea of cognitive biases and the, and the impact that they have on decision-making uh, is certainly worth us uh, talking about. So I'm going to reference Mike Pender's article throughout this uh, podcast. And again, I want to be very clear that I've done a lot of research on this myself, but Mike's article really kind of brought together a lot of things for me in a, in a very concise way. So with full attribution to Mr. Pender, for putting this together. Let me share this with you. And one of the points that he makes right away is that when we talk about cognitive biases sort of in general, we have to understand that they're not inherently bad. We, we you know, I, I've always thought about cognitive biases as something negative or something problematic 
that we must overcome. But as he accurately points out, right at the very beginning of this uh, of this great article, it is that over the millennia that uh, we would have uh, developed and so forth, you know, if we didn't have cognitive biases, we would be so overcome with information that we just literally could not function. So because of all the amount of information that we're bombarded with, especially in our uh, existing uh, information overload uh, type society that we live in now, we have to have some way of processing and dealing with all of that. And in some ways, we use our biases to assist us in sort of sifting through or or highlighting those things that might be more important than not for us to pay attention to. Otherwise, we'd be overwhelmed. So we have to understand that while the biases are important to us, they can lead to errors that or assumptions that that would actually limit us from being as innovative as we could or should be. Now, you know, if you're really trying to be innovative, then in addition to doing those things that would lead you towards a positive innovation outcome, you must also think about the things that would deter or detract from your innovation outcome and minimize those as much as possible. So I think that's where I'm hoping that you'll understand and see the, the benefit of talking about these biases today. If we're not careful, And if we're not paying attention, then our ability to come up with good ideas, uh, just how creative we would be, and and really, most importantly, thinking about innovative outcomes. What is it that we want to have occur that's innovative is going to be impinged. So if we think about this whole idea of everything that you know that you've accumulated over the years, let's call that your prior experience, your background. You might be listening to this podcast. You might be 18 years old. You might be 28 years old. You might be 48 years old. You might be 68 years old. And depending on, you know, where you are in your life in terms of the number of years on this planet and your career, how many years have you been doing what you do, you sort of become anchored or grounded, a shameless shameless plug for my book, uh, grounded in this whole idea of, of, what you do and how you do it really just kind of becomes very, very ingrained. And so this can, uh, this can lead towards something that I personally call the numbing effect of routine. Pinder calls it the curse of knowledge in, in terms of because you know what you know, you tend to, to put things into the context of that knowledge. A lot of times you'll hear people talk about this and say, well, you know, that guy, Jones over there, every, you know, he, everything looks like a nail to him because all he can think of is, is being a hammer. So, you know, that's, that's sort of a metaphor, if you will, or a simile. I'll need to ask my good friend Lee Weatherington about that. But, but that's where we, we sort of talk about this idea of the, the curse of knowledge. If we're so grounded in what we do, anchored in the knowledge that we have, then do we pretty much ignore anything that falls outside of that knowledge. And because I work in financial services and I've worked for many, many years with bankers, people from credit unions and from fintech companies, I see this, uh, this, this idea that somebody, you know, does a certain job, a certain procedure over and over and over again, they get very, very good, very skilled at doing that thing. But it almost makes them more likely to miss opportunities for innovation. If everything gets ground into that one track, what, what are you really doing to look outside you know, to overcome this negative impact and be more innovative thinking. So, you know, the more experienced you are, just think about this, the more experienced you are, the less likely it is that you'll be creative and innovative. This is this is why it's so critically important that we as older, I'm, I'm about to be 61, 
Uh, so I'm a baby boomer. And, uh, and, you know, we look at these younger kids coming along, you know, somebody's 22, 24 years old, and we say, oh, they, you know, they're, they're brand new. They're starting out. They don't know anything. Well, it's exactly because they don't have the experience that I have that I should pay close attention to them if they're coming into an area where I have this vast amount of knowledge and they see things and they raise their hand and go, hey, why, you know, why, why do we do this? Why is this this way? We have to be critically, uh, acutely aware of those kinds of scenarios to say, wait a minute, this this could be the very thing that alerts us to a cognitive bias that's oh, that's keeping us, preventing us from seeing something that could be innovative. So just know again, the more the more experienced you are, the more you're likely to be in autopilot, a, a term that I use a lot when I do innovation talks, where your brain's on autopilot and it's automatically doing these things because it's it has to to overcome all of this information. And so therefore, it just makes it all the more easy for you to ignore things that you really should be paying attention to that might lead towards innovation thinking. Pinder talks about that uh, cognitive biases can be split into two types, information processing and emotional so information processing biases, there's statistical quantitative errors, you know, and, and these are things that once you identify them, you can fix those because you'll get new information, you'll get updated. Whereas emotional biases are harder because now you're talking about attitudes and feelings, both conscious and unconscious. So these are ones that are, are a little bit harder to actually know that you have that kind of bias and even harder still to ameliorate because of the fact that it deals with emotions and feelings. So again, just recognize and know that you have to be on guard. Uh, when I do innovation talks, I talk a lot about understanding that your brain is on autopilot. And I actually do some exercises, uh, even if I'm standing in a, you know, a hall with many hundreds of, uh, of people, I'll do exercises with them right on the spot to show them that their brains work on autopilot. Uh, and it's, you know, just consistently over the years, I've been able to demonstrate this idea that our that our left brain jumps to those conclusions. The right brain's the creative part that's kind of stuck in the back of the room, never gets a chance to answer the question. So we've got to be aware and look for those opportunities where we can overcome those built-in biases. And here's here's another point that I want to make. When we start recognizing those and we start questioning ourselves and 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 even articulating to others what we're thinking about, we bring on a personal risk because one of the other thing one of the reasons why we don't do this is because we're so concerned about what other people think of us. So if I go, "Ooh, you know what? I'm just I'm not really sure if I'm thinking." If I went to a colleague and laid out a scenario and said, "Look, I, I want you to look at this scenario. I may not be thinking uh, 100% clear. I may have a bias here. Uh, take a look at this for me." Um would that be viewed by that colleague as weakness? would be like, oh, David's David's not that confident about his skill and ability, right? So we we get all tied up and wrapped up into what other people might think and how how this will be perceived if I do this this way. And we let all of that literally stop us from sometimes just kind of taking a little break and stopping and going to a colleague that we trust, say, hey, check me on this. I, I'm not sure that I'm looking at this completely objectively. And there should be no reason uh, for that to be viewed anything other than a huge positive instead of us operating on, on autopilot. So in the article, Mike Pinder goes on to talk about a three-step process to debias innovation. So here we go. It's a three-step process. And number one, and I talk about this over and over again, 
in the podcasts that I've done and when I speak at conferences is number one, spot the biases. Understand and know that these things do occur. Don't put your head in the sand. Don't pretend like they don't happen to you. But go ahead and accept that these things do happen. And whether they happen to you a lot or a little, be aware that they happen and then, uh, you know, take some some positive action. Or at the very least, raise your hand and go, hey, 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 I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not thinking objectively about this. There's some times that Mike uh, identifies when these are likely to come out. Certainly any time that you're in a group setting, you know, doing brainstorming or ideation, if you're discussing what you think are the most important features of your product or service for your customers, when you storyboard prototypes to build and test during business, you know, modeling and, and so forth, it, these and more are the kinds of scenarios in which it's more likely than not for biases to appear. So again, knowing that those are the timeframes, what are the things that we do or should we be doing in those specific scenarios to look for and identify when we may be operating in a bias, right? So it's like, well, David, how, how should I do that? Well, of course, Mike Pinder, he's identified this. So he literally in his article penned 25 sentences that would alert you. These are the things that we would say that should be the triggers for us that go, ooh, I could be operating under a bias right now. Now, I'm not going to read all these to you. Please go to the Mike Pender article yourself and read it. But but some of these are the ones that you've heard many times before. That's the way we've always done it. If you say that's the way we've always done it, you know, that could very well be the trigger for a cognitive bias. Uh, we know what our customers want. Yeah? Really? Are you sure? The CEO needs to validate it first. Oh, this has already been done. Or... or Hey, I'm not a creative person, or I'm I'm not in charge of of creativity, innovation, or organization. And again, I've I've mentioned this in many podcasts before. I believe over and over again that I see these uh, individuals working at companies across a vast spectrum of different professions, not just financial services, who don't believe it's their job to be creative. Not my job to come up with innovations. That's see those IT guys over there, or see those programmers. That's their job. And so this is one of the biggest problems that we have is people who just don't feel like it's their job to be creative, so they don't. And I think uh, ultimately every employee should be thinking innovatively and creatively in a structured, meaningful way that's appropriate to their job level and and uh, in the direction from their uh, senior management. And there's absolutely no reason why every company can't have people thinking about this. So when I when I look over all of these 25 sentences that uh, that Mike put in here, I agree with every one of them. And as a strategic planning facilitator, I've heard many of these given out. And, and you know, what I tell people is, look, those are excuses. You can come up with all kinds of excuses why you shouldn't be innovative. You can also come up with a lot of excuses related to the fact that you don't believe that cognitive biases apply to you. And that's just simply not true. So, so number one, big picture is just know that your brain's on autopilot and accept the fact that you have cognitive biases, however little or much, and be in a position to identify them when they occur. So number one is just go bing, light goes off, flashing, claxtons, you know, uh, lost in space, warning, warning, Will Robinson. Boom, you are in uh, cognitive bias mode. Accept it, recognize it, call it out. Number one, know that it exists. Number two is then not just knowing, but conquering it. How to overcome 
and deal with um, specific biases. So once again, as a part of the resources in this article by Mike Pender, he actually created a, a cognitive biases poster. And again, if you go to the show notes and you access this article, you'll have a link to be able to get this poster. And, and you know what? I would get it and I would post it up around places. I would I would plaster it on the wall. I put it in my cube. I would, if I was a manager, I'd put it up in several places where people can see it because these are important things for us to recognize and understand. They absolutely exist. And we would be remiss if we somehow pretend like they don't apply to us. So again, I'm not going to go into all of these. There's 16 of them in there. And there's, you know, sunk cost bias and false casualty bias, action bias, self-serving bias, framing bias, strategic misrepresentation, all kinds of biases. He's uh, identified 16. Let me just highlight a couple of these that I think are were pr- particularly meaningful to me. Number one is the confirmation bias. And, you know, the confirmation bias simply says, you know, something that we've looked at and done before confirms what we already know. It sort of fits right in with our uh, autopilot, right? So we, this is literally the, the hammer and the nail type of thing. And it, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy. Uh, not long ago, I uh, was trying to figure out why the, uh, the it seemed hot. It was, it was July and it just seemed more hot in my office than it should be. And so I'm, I'm looking at the thermostat and I'm trying to figure out, is it broken? Is it not working? It's you know, it's 79 degrees. Why Why is it not working? And this is like, you know, Thursday afternoon. And then I can't figure it out. I'm trying to, you know, I'm checking the breaker on the AC unit, like all of this stuff. Well, turns out that when <laughs> I had recorded a podcast the previous day at 8 a.m. and I turned off the AC because I didn't want the unit coming on and making noise while I was doing the recording. So I just simply forgotten to turn it back on. So, so you know, my confirmation bias, instead of actually looking and seeing, well, as it turned on, never even occurred to me because it would be silly. Why would it be off, right? My bias was that the unit's on, it's just not working properly. So, you know, turn, turn it on and very quickly it went back to 73 degrees and I was fine. So, okay, say, David, that's just a silly example. But again, that that kind of thing where we just automatically assume things, instead of checking, instead of being sure, we just assume things, happens all the time. And it happens with uh, events and things that are happening. It happens with how we read into the intentions of others. And, and listen, I, I do it. I read into the intentions of others and then think, well, wait a minute. Do I really know what's going on, on the other side? Why would I assume that? So I, I do have to catch myself with those kinds of confirmation bounds. Let's talk about number two, conformity bias. So this is where now, not just kind of what we think, but you know, you have this big picture of what a lot of people think, or maybe people that are within our certain geoeconomic, you know, status or whatever else. And we we listen to what other people think, and then we sort of fall along with that and we we conform. And again, this this goes back to something else that I talked about a little earlier in the podcast of whether or not we conform because we're worried about what other people will think about us. And there is a lot of pressure to conform, and that leads towards conformity bias. Number three, for me, is authority bias. So this is where you have somebody in authority. Just think about all the people you see on on, on TV or podcasts that you listen to, whatever else. And there's somebody so-and-so, and you know they've got degrees, they're doctor so-and-so, and, and whatever else. And so whenever we see or hear from somebody who is in a position of authority, we are more likely than not 
to accept what they say as being the the gospel, if you want to consider it that way. So we have to be aware of the fact that we could be looking or listening to information uh, that may not make sense in other areas, but that we're accepting it as true simply because it's coming from an authority uh, type figure. Number nine on Pender's list was ambiguity bias. So this is where where we favor outcomes where we have more knowledge about what would happen than not. So in a situation where you have a couple of different things going on and you know a lot about what would happen with option A, you know a little bit about what might happen with option B, you know nothing about what would happen with option C. Our bias is simply to go with A, even if A is not the right answer, simply because we know more about what that outcome would be in the other two options. Right now within financial services, we're facing this in this in the this whole area of faster payments and what kind of faster payments will customers actually need to use and or desire in the future. And so there are some options that we know well and then there's those that are uh, quite a bit of ambiguity about because we don't really know how they're going to work. And so a lot of organizations, and let's be honest, financial institutions are not known for, you know, being out there on the cutting edge and, and, and taking a lot of risks. So there may be a bias to doing something that is at least more familiar to you than not. So again, you can apply the same, the same kind of thinking and ambiguity to your particular field. Okay, number 11 on his list was the bandwagon bias. So, you know, favoring ideas already adopted by others. So if you already know, and again, I'll, I'll just use my friends in the financial services industry, a lot of times uh, you'll see financial institutions doing something, not because it was strategically important to them, whatever else, but they see others in their area doing it. And they're like, ooh, ooh, ooh we get, you know, hey, hey, they can't have that. You know, I, I've got to have that. Now, again, I don't mean to poke at my financial services, friends, and so forth. This happens in all industries where somebody starts to do something and then there's that, this bandwagon effect, which may actually be right. You know, At the end of the day, you, you're not necessarily going to be on the wrong end. Again, using a banking example, if everyone's moving towards mobile remote deposit capture and you decide not to, that's not necessarily a winning strategy. But it should be done with your own thought towards how strategic it is and how you roll it out and how you do it, not just jumping on the bandwagon uh, of somebody else. Then we have the status quo bias. So just uh, standing still, you know, favoring the current situation or status quo and just maintaining it for fear of, of a loss. You've probably heard people say, well, if you're in the status quo, you're, you're going backwards, right? If, you, if you're just going to maintain the status quo, then you're by default going backwards. And there's some truth to that. There's some there's some truth to that. I, one of my new favorite quotes that I use in uh, a lot of my innovation presentations, particularly when talking about things like how do you make a difficult decision? There's a quote by Teddy Roosevelt. Can't go wrong with Teddy. He's got some great quotes. He talks about decision making. He says the you know the best decision you can make is the right decision. The next best decision is the wrong decision, and the worst decision is no decision. Right. So this this brings into effect this idea of moving forward, not standing still, not accepting the status quo, even making a wrong decision can bring information, learning, insight that leads you towards making a right decision. You know, so this whole I don't have time to get into this now, but but, you know, this idea of, of being uh, afraid of making mistakes, it, it leads a lot of organizations to not innovate at all. So we've got to be willing to, to make a decision. And if it's wrong, 
then we learn from it and correct it and, and move on. But a status quo bias, this standstill, everything's fine. We don't need to innovate. Uh, our customers are not asking us for these things. This is how we've always done it. These are these are critically harmful biases for companies to have. And then the anchoring bias, of course, writing a book called Grounded with a big anchor on the cover, anything that says anchor on it, I kind of like. But the uh, anchoring bias is, is, again, where we influence by information that we already know or is already shown. So if we already have something that we can anchor to that, and then we sort of latch on to that and go, oh, that's close to something that I already know. So that must be the, the right way to do it. You know, this is where, especially if we go into, say, like a brainstorming scenario, but you, but you provide the participants with a bunch of information that, that sort of puts ideas in their minds by anchoring those, and they've already kind of heard those things. You know, it might be done on purpose, or it could just be done inadvertently, but we could sway the actual types of innovation ideas that come out of that just by giving them some kind of information that that provides an anchor. I don't know how close this is to anchoring bias, but what just popped into my head was this video that I found on YouTube. And I'll put a link uh, to that out on the show notes. But it's it's an interview years ago with Steve Ballmer, who at the time was the CEO of uh, Microsoft. And it was not long after the iPhone first came out. So if you remember that first version of the iPhone, it was really the first time that you didn't have a uh, you know, you had this just single display with one uh, with one button on it, and Steve Ballmer is being interviewed by some you know uh, uh, anchor business you know business show or something like that, and he is just ridiculing this silly device that Apple just came out with, and you know and laughing la- openly laughing in the interview about this will never be this is not a serious device this is a play toy uh, it would never be used by anybody in a in a business environment it doesn't even have a keyboard. So again, at the time, all devices had keyboards. So the idea that it didn't have one, there was a, this anchor bias that says you have to have a keyboard. Of course, uh, Apple's like, no, you don't have to have a physical keyboard. You could have a virtual keyboard. And of course, now we know how many iPhones that are out there being used and in business uh, and then all of Microsoft's efforts to actually have a workable phone or a, a lot of people use has never come to fruition. So so we have to watch out for all of these different biases. Mike Pender identifies 16 different ones here. I just highlighted a couple of them, but I think you can see where you could have those biases creep into your business and or your personal life. So number one was just know that your brain's operating on autopilot. That could happen. Number two, specifically being able to spot certain biases and go, yep, I'm I'm doing that right now. And then number three would be to overcome. You got to overcome those biases. You're not going to stop being biased. You just have to be able to recognize that you're biased and overcome it. The article references a quote by Jim Hightower. Great quote here. The opposite of courage is not cowardice. It's conformity. Even a dead fish can go with the flow. Oh my gosh. That's, that's awesome. The opposite of courage is conformity. So how do we overcome these cognitive biases? So uh, number one, you have to become aware, you know, that your whole way of thinking, the criteria that you're using uh, in a subconscious basis is going to be governed by these biases and, and that you're operating in an autopilot mode. And so now you need to be able to say, wait a second, if I'm operating in an autopilot mode, how do I how do I break out of that? And this is where you start really collaborating with other team members to sort of check you and, and be in a position to 
assist in overcoming a bias or spotting a bias because you're open with one another. Now, this is not going to be easy and, and you're not going to get it right, you know, right out of the jump. But over, over time, you can actually get to the point where you become more well attuned to the fact that you're in autopilot and you w- would have the ability to actually uh, not only recognize it, but overcoming it, right? So now we start thinking about this idea of lateral thinking. So if you look at the bigger picture of innovation tools that, you know, that are out there, there's a lot of lateral thinking methods. This is where you try to literally change how you think. And, and I, I talk about metacognition, thinking about how we think, studying this idea of how we go about thinking through solving problems, coming up with innovative ideas, but yet there's uh, tools out there for you. So opposite thinking, analogy thinking, uh, the six thinking hats, a great book. Uh, I highly recommend that. Uh, brain writing. And, and you know, those are, are some examples that Pinder gives um, in this article this is an important element for us to be be looking at and reading the kinds of, of uh, books and so forth that will help us understand that. So number one is to sort of arm yourself with what other people have written about how you're going to be able to overcome these biases. Number two, understand that the more tired you are, the more likely it is that you would succumb to a bias. So think about you're doing a strategic planning session, and I, and I get to facilitate these on a regular basis. And, you know, I can sort of tell when the group is is kind of worn down and you think, oh, well, we're all just sitting around in chairs or we're just, you know, writing stuff on. But, but when you're engaged that much with your brain, I find that even though I'm not actually speaking that much in a strategic planning session, when I'm done with one of those, I'm exhausted. And it's like your brain is just really working hard and it takes a lot of resources energy and so forth to power that kind of stuff. So, you know, towards the end of a session, one of the things that I like to do is get to a point where we gather up a lot of data and then we end for the day and then we start analyzing that data at the beginning of the next day. So you're starting fresh instead of, you know, where you're kind of a little bit tired and it's just easier to, oh my gosh, okay, yeah, fine. I'll, you know, (laughs) I'll check this box or I'll just say this, whatever. So, you know, be, be aware. And I know that sometimes it's hard to schedule this, but three half day sessions are way more desirable than one and a half days where you're going all the way through. And sometimes it's hard to, to schedule that. But, you know, if you do three half-day sessions and then you go out and you have a thing or give people the afternoon off or go play golf or go have a fun event or do something that's kind of a mental coffee break, that's huge relative to people being really focused and in, in avoiding this sort of fuzzy front end in terms of how they're evaluating options. And then at the end of the day, one of the things that a lot of companies will do is they use an internal person to be a facilitator. And it's very, very difficult for that person to operate without biases. So you can bring in an external facilitator to sort of eliminate that whole idea of putting ideas in people's heads and so forth. Now, shameless plug, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a facilitator. I facilitate a lot of strategic planning meetings. So of course, I'm like, yeah, you need to bring an outside facilitator. But to be fair, when you think about how well it works, where you have somebody who is, say, a senior official of the company running those brainstorming sessions, I found that the people who are participating in those are never as open and and innovative as they could or should be, simply because they're a little concerned about, well, that's my boss or my boss's boss, and how are they going to view this? So anyway, let's just summarize here. So number one is spot the biases, so be aware that you are operating on autopilot, and then understand and know the specific biases that could occur, 
right? So I could be making a decision on a particular bias right now, and I'm listening for those kinds of, of, of sentences. And if one of those comes out of my mouth or something similar to that, I'm going to be aware, or perhaps I ask a coworker to check me right on that. And then overcoming the biases. And, you know, to do that, you, you, you come up with some innovative ways uh, that you can get around that. Now, there's, there's an example I'm going to give you right now that I've used in many, many uh, strategic planning sessions. It's called reverse brainstorming. So if you want to brainstorm on a particular topic, you put a question up there and you get a group of people around, hopefully no more than four or five is a good number, and you you, you come up with ideas. But pretty quickly, you know, your, your ideas will sort of peter out. And you're also operating under these biases, so you're almost not thinking about all the kinds of things there could be because you've, you've without knowing it, you've put some gates on your thinking in, in terms of only what is possible. So here's how reverse brainstorming has worked. Whatever it is you're trying to ideate on, you actually ideate on the opposite. So I'll just give you an example. Let's suppose, let's use an example outside of financial services. Let's suppose that you had a group together, you were trying to come up with ideas on how to get more people to ride public transport, right? So we're going to try to encourage people to ride the bus instead of taking their own car. Let's suppose that was your idea. And so you put that up on the board and people are coming up with ideas, you know, kind of marketing plan. You know, we could, you know, provide some other kind of incentives. Uh, you know, we could we could help them understand, you know, how how much beneficial this clean bus is than their car to the environment. You know, all, all those kinds of examples. Pretty quickly, you'd sort of run out of, of gas on, on asking that. So then I say, okay, great. Put that flip chart aside. Start a brand new flip chart. Let's ideate on how to keep people from riding public transport. What would it take if you wanted to make sure nobody ever rode public transportation? They kind of look at me, what? Yeah, let's come on. Let's come up with any possible, right? And so then all of a sudden it's like, well, okay, we're going to have the local gang run the <laughs> run the bus and we're, we're going to have a free alcohol, drug use. I mean, you know, it's just, you can get as crazy as you want, right? Because now you're, you're in this mode where, okay, I'm going to come up with all of the wacky things about what I'm going to do to keep people right from from riding the bus. And so you you gather a bunch of stuff. And they, they typically have a lot of fun. I hear a lot more laughter, you know, as they're coming up with really kind of out there ideas, right? And so we we get to a, a, a stopping point and we stop that. And then I say, okay, here's why I had you do that reverse brainstorming. Go into each one of those ideas you came up with on the reverse brainstorming and reverse that and see whether or not it adds to your list that that you had the first list because and so when you start going down there and you're looking at uh, for example how unsafe you could have made the bus if you didn't want them out now all of a sudden there's a safety element that wasn't a part of the options that you had the first go round but now it's been added simply because it's the reverse of an answer or an idea when you were doing how do I keep people off the bus? So that idea of reverse brainstorming frees us. The, let's, let's come up with all the negative things that we can. And that sort of frees us to get just kind of really crazy with ideas. And then we reverse those and we come up with new ideas. So, so that's a great way to overcome uh, cognitive biases. There's very little chance that in that reverse brainstorming, you're going to have cognitive biases come into play. So again, I'll have the uh, article from uh, Mike Pinder Innovation Consultant at the Board of Innovation is out. I'll put that out there on the show notes. I encourage you to go read that article. Reach out to Mike Pender uh, if you like. I'm also interested in hearing from you if you would like 
to share stories about, A, if you were able to understand and, and recognize uh, about cognitive biases, and even more importantly, how you were able to overcome those, I would welcome the opportunity to hear from you. And so my uh, contact information will be coming up here in, uh, in just a few seconds. So please reach out to me and let me know how you're going about overcoming cognitive biases and generating innovation-driven growth. Thanks again for investing your valuable time listening to the Innovation Driven Growth podcast. I covet your questions, comments, or critique. You can reach me at david at davidpeterson.com. I'm also on Facebook at DP Speaks and everywhere else on social media at DLP Speaks. I look forward to hearing from you and be sure to look for a new episode soon.